Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. What is it about that Eye of the Tiger song in particular that makes it so iconic for Psych Up. One of the theories is that a song is motivational because of our recollections of it, that it's about our memories. We all remember the training montages from the Rocky movies. Presenting Psyched Up, how the science of mental preparation can help you succeed. Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson. Since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from the rarefied studios of the Harvard Business Review on the poor man's side of the Charles River, i.e. not Cambridge, is Dan McGinn, senior editor at the Harvard Business Review. His bylines have appeared in Newsweek, Wired, the Boston Globe magazine. He is editor of Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. How are you good, sir? I'm great. Thank you. How did this book idea come to you? So it really had its origins in three different places. Part of it dates back to high school. I was a a high school athlete, not a very good one, but I played football and basketball, and I got really interested in the things that the coaches would do to try to get us psyched up before the games and what the players would do themselves, the music, the rituals, the... Um, all the pep talks, the sort of culture that went into this getting your mind and your body ready to ready to play. Uh, when I became a father, I watched my children start to do the same thing in their auditions, their tryouts, their little league sports. And then when I came to Harvard Business Review, I would occasionally see research studies that seemed to touch on parts of this as it applied to the workplace, rituals at work, superstitions, pep talks for Salesforce. Um, So I decided to look at how you psych up on the job. And you actually got a decent book advance out of this? Uh, I'm happy with the way the book has turned out. So, uh, uh, you know. (laughs) I always want to buttonhole Charlie Duhigg, who's on the back of your book of the New York Times. And he got this legendary advance for his book on habits and everything. He's like, how did I not see that one? Is it it like a derivative on, obviously, Malcolm Gladwell and his... A uh, famous treatise on ten thousand hours of practicing to master anything. Are do you, do you think of yourself kind of in that in that school of thought in that canon? Oh, well, uh, certainly I admire Gladwell's books. I'm you know definitely not in Malcolm Gladwell's league. Um, I like uh, I like Charlie Charles Duhigg's books quite a bit as well. Um, I think you know people seem to have an appetite for research based uh, information with a lot of stories packaged around it. So certainly in terms of the the way the book feels and the the user experience, that's what I would aspire to. Now, tell me about this here that I'm looking at. 
an upcoming piece, an upcoming excerpt that you have in the Harvard Business Review. And there are three elements, actually, that go into the kinds of persuasion that we're talking about. Uh, According to science, most winning formulas of, I guess, psyching up for something include three key elements, direction giving, expressions of empathy, and meaning making. I'll tell you this, coming off the Great Recession and in my last job, especially culturally, you know where the magazine business has been headed, Dan, for the better part of a decade, but uh, kind of just fear of losing your job was the chief motivator. If you don't want to do it, somebody else will. I mean, why should I be privy to the luxury of having any sort of, of um, you know, granular motivator looking above me? Sure. Well, there's all sorts of research that shows that people do a better job in all sorts of kinds of endeavors if they have some larger motivation, something, you know, sort of beyond the money or beyond what's in it for them. Um, you know, one of the examples that one of the researchers gave is that they looked at motivation levels at a pharmaceutical startup that was working on cancer drugs. And a lot of the people who worked there had lost relatives to cancer. Um, so the meaning that goes into that work gives them a little bit more oomph in the morning. And if you're a manager or you're a coach trying to give a pep talk, uh, to your performers, uh, if you can establish a meaning beyond the sort of just day-to-day sort of drudgery of it, um, you have a better chance of getting those people energized and sort of aligned in the same team. And I'll tell you, the, the neatest part about the research into the pep talks is that I found researchers that were looking at this in an athletic realm. I found researchers that were looking at military pep talks. I found researchers that were looking at managerial pep talks, and they had never heard of each other. There's, you know, three completely different fields and they're not talking to each other. They had no idea what the other one was doing. So there was a great opportunity to sort of synthesize and draw connections there. Yeah, I don't I mean, it, it, it takes a kind of, a, you know, 15,000 feet in the air perspective to see a universality or similitude between something like a, a manager at a, a burger flipping operation where you would think he would just say, guys, look, it is what it is. I don't like it. You don't like it. Let's just uh, do it, do it decently, do it clean and get out of here. But you talk about this in your book that in your essay as well, that you have to um, put that maybe in terms of empathy and look, we're all here. And if we we do this together, we can provide for our families a little better and provide for job security all the way up to somebody like a Stanley McChrystal, you know, at the military level where you're overseas and you have to motivate men. And it's completely about uh, mission and something very high minded. And, and you found kind of connective tissue between the two. Sure. And one of the interesting things that McChrystal brought out when I spoke He's the to him, retired four-star general who s- oversaw special ops in Iraq and Afghanistan. Absolutely. One of the things that he brings forward in this that was really interesting is that the extent to, some, to which num- somebody needs a pep talk and can benefit from it depends partly on sort of their internal motivation, how professional they are. Uh, so he was talking about the Navy SEALs, which he worked with. He's like, you know, listen, the Navy SEALs, they they didn't need meaning, you know, they knew what they signed up for. They'd been doing this for years. They're, you know, the consummate professionals. Our pep talks to them were mostly strategic and informational and direction giving. Okay, here's what we're going to do tonight. At that level, you kind of don't need so much the meaning making or the empathy. Um, but he said earlier in his career when he was talking to, you know, very green troops on their first combat mission, he would give a much different kind of pep talk because those people really needed that that sort of extra oomph and that level of motivation. Mm. I got to tell you, 20 years ago this month, uh, this is neither here nor there, but it's pretty much there. Um, I signed up to become a White House intern, and I showed up in D.C. Uh, it was between my junior and senior year of college with my garment bag and a, 
um, a lease at George Washington University, and I showed up with a U-Haul. It doesn't pay anything, uh, but I thought this would be a great adventure. You'd work in the Clinton administration and maybe uh, get dibs on a speechwriting position if Al Gore becomes president, yada, 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 yada. Uh, I ended up getting a gig that I didn't want in the old executive office building adjacent to the West Wing. And... Um, you know, my superiors there completely ignored me. They just they just saw this intern as a person who, yeah, I give him a desk, give him a dial-up modem, dial-in modem, and, you know, take him on advanced tours and everything. And I, I looked at it as an opportunity to kind of, you know, check out early, go check out the bar scene in Georgetown, <laughs> meet all the other interns from across the city. Meanwhile, there are people who worked alongside me, uh, essentially in the, in the office next door, even in the West Wing, who similarly got no compensation out of this, but... A superior told them this is meaningful work. You are, I won't say changing the world because that's become so cliche with Silicon Valley, but what you are doing here is is helping America and they, you know, helping Bill Clinton with his policy achievements that are going to help everyday Americans and middle class people. And these people put in 80, 90 hours a week. I never saw them socialize. And I kept thinking to myself, gosh, if this, if this guy just pulled me aside for even five minutes when I got here and a few minutes every week and even – imprinted upon me that this was meaningful or that it could be meaningful for me and for him and that there was something at the end of the line for all of us, it would have made such a difference. So what's interesting in that story to me is that the boss in that situation had the good sense to to sound those notes, at least to the other people. Um, one of the people I talked to in the book that was really interesting was Bill Campbell, the legendary Silicon Valley mentor and coach to people like Steve Jobs and the Google guys. And one, he, he actually died last year. I was one of the last people to interview him. And one of the points that he made is that it's no coincidence that a lot of the people he was coaching and mentoring out there were these computer guys who from age 13 on spent their days with their nose in front of a screen and they didn't play high school sports. They didn't have those kind of formative team building experiences. You know, if you, if you think about pep talks and you think about how people learn to do that, a lot of it is by mimicry from what we saw when we were kids or from watching movies. <laughs> Glenn and, Gary, Glenn Ross. <laughs> exactly. Or I, one of the people I went and talked with, I went and talked with the screenwriter for Hoosiers because the, the pep talks in the, that movie are particularly iconic. Campbell would have people watch that movie over and over because he wanted the people running tech companies who had no background in sports to learn a little bit of that rhetoric and style and the idea that, you know, you need to give these people some larger purpose here and the, your words and the way you speak them are an important part of that. So not everybody picks this up and some people get it and some people don't. And if you get into a leadership dot job and this doesn't come naturally to you, it really helps if you learn the formula. Well, color me cynical. The first job I ultimately took out of college when I graduated was at a brokerage firm. It was back then when the bull market was you know, roar, roar, roaring, and you, you, you have to kind of try to not get an offer from a Wall Street job. And um, I just remember the the extent of the bull shattery in terms of the PowerPoint presentations and the sushi dinners and cell nights in New York about making markets and creating value and team building and pretty much every anodyne um, uh, boilerplate phrase they could throw out and, and making these, uh, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed 22-year-olds feel like they were actually impacting something, uh, going to take the lowest-rung position at a brokerage firm. In the end, you were just putting pitch books together and spending a lot of time doing that and being on a short leash of your managing director, your VP. But as I was reading your book, I was thinking about how that was kind of overkill that they promised me all of that and all these platitudes and ended up kind of essentially letting me be a spreadsheet monkey. 
Well, what's interesting in that is that, you know, imagine if you'd continued in that world, um, you know, your your personal balance sheet might look a little bit different. Um, you'd have some pluses and some minuses to it. But at a certain point, you would have grown into a job there where it wasn't about being the spreadsheet monkey. It was going into the room and pitching for the business. And that's really the kind of moments that the book is about in the, you know, part of the idea here is that uh, at a certain level, people's jobs are becoming less routinized. It's less about the 2000 hours in the year that you're working. And it's more about, you know, those isolated moments when you're pitching for the business, when you're trying to make the big sale, when you're, you know, trying to close the deal or do the interview or the negotiation. So if you'd become a boss in that kind of a firm, the kind of information in this book might've been very helpful to you as you went into pitch to be the brokerage on that, on like, that IPO. Like always be producing, you know, always be producing. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, if your job is the kind of thing where um, not every day is the same and there's some days where you really need to bring your A game, uh, there's a routine that you could find. There are techniques you could use to really sort of like an athlete figure out the best way to put yourself into that zone, into that mindset where you have the best odds of doing your best performance. Dan McGinn, senior editor at Harvard Business Review, um, author of the new book, which hits when? Hits on June 6th. Psyched up how the science of mental preparation can help you succeed. This, you know, we take it back. You have you have uh, adolescent children and preparedness now for teen sports and the SAT and everything. I look back at that and I can't imagine anything my dad or mom could have told me other, other than the, the usual kind of, um, you know, palliative, listen, in the grand scheme of things, you're going to look back, this is going to mean nothing. You have your health. So what? You'll go to a state school. That's definitely one way to approach it. And one of the striking things when I went out to report on this subject and when I looked at my own life is that many of the things that we intuitively think are the right things to say in that moment, they turn out to be some of the wrong things to say. So I tend to sort of natch, I have sort of an Irish fatalism to me uh, and I tend to fall back on worst case scenarios. Uh, so if you were my son and you were going in to take the SATs, it might be natural for me to say something like, you know, Robin, you know, you're only a sophomore right now. So you get to take this test four or five more times. So, you know, if you bomb it today, it really doesn't matter. Um, on the one hand, that sounds like really good advice. On the other hand, it's priming you to think about failure. Um, the best thing for me to do is to do the exact opposite, which is to sort of find ways to reinforce your confidence, to talk about what a great test taker you've been in the past. Um, so some of no, our no, natural no, say, it impulses, in a, say it in another way. Like, if you don't get at least a 1500 son, you're no son of mine. Uh, yeah, that I know people who probably use that kind of language. Yeah. Would you use that on your son? Would you say you're no son of mine? No, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't hold, you know, the, Carol Dweck at Stanford is best known for the psychology of inputs versus outputs um, that you want to encourage people to uh, to focus on what they can put into a task and not whether they win or lose or whether they get a 1500 or a 1300. Um, so focusing on the out, outcome like that is definitely not the right way to do it either, although certainly there are parents that would do that. It, it reminded me of the infamous tiger mother who showed up on the Today Show, what, three years ago with... Uh, was she a Yale grad or something and talking about tormenting her daughter playing piano and she hated this one uh, uh, turn of notes or something and was running up to her room and throwing tantrums and everything until she mastered it and played it so beautifully that I don't know, yada, 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 she played at Carnegie Hall. And this one anecdote she shared was that I think when the daughter was young, 
made the mother some sort of Mother's Day card or birthday card, and the mother sent it back. Said, you know what? I think you can do much better than this. This is unacceptable. And I'm like, I'm like, what's going on here? Well, whatever happened to you know? Maybe I'm just weak. I believe in, uh, at least with my children, the empathy that 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 try as hard as you can, and and trying is three fifths of the battle. Yeah, especially as kids become teenagers, I totally get what you're saying that. I, you know, they're not going to listen to you. It's going to be hard to come up with the right advice. And I get that. I, I understand that. And some of the things that I talk about in the book are strategies that don't rely on actual words or pep talks. So um, there's a chapter in the book on how to find the right music to motivate yourself before important performance events. And there's a whole science of what kinds of songs help psych people up. So, you know, it can be as simple as letting your teenager choose the right kind of music on the radio, on the car ride to the big tryout or the big exam. Um, so that's one thing you can do. There's a whole science of visual priming of, you know, what kind of images uh, on, you know, posters on the wall uh, can help them think about the right thoughts. Um, some of this stuff does sound like mumbo jumbo. It sounds like the old subliminal advertising in the movie theater with the popcorn and the Coca-Cola. Um, but there is some research that suggests some of these sorts of things can work. Um, I, I want to get to, uh, and, and I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV, but I'm thinking about the reptilian brain. Um, and I don't know if that's the base of our kind of fight or flight tendencies of, you know, in, in, in the kind of the dinosaurian alligator crocodile world, you're hunter or hunted and you can flee. It kind of reminds me of that scene. You, you must have seen that video on the island of the, the snakes chasing this iguana, right? Yep. You know, fight or flight and do it. And I guess to some extent, you know, our brains, we've added a lot of gray matter on top of that, but that is the base. That is the, the most atavistic essence of us right there. You're saying don't, don't fear that. Um, kind of channel it, sublimate around it so that you could use that that fight or flight mechanism to your advantage. I mean, tease that out for me. The fact that sure. you're almost supposed to espouse the anxiety and channel it. So again, going back to the idea that in high school football, I witnessed these ways that people would try to get themselves, you know, highly energized before a Friday night lights kind of football game. When I started the reporting for this book, I've had a very simplistic notion of what it meant to get psyched up. I really thought about it as a light switch. And I thought about it mostly about adrenaline, the idea that, well, if you're doing certain things, you want to be able to flip the switch on. So the adrenaline is coursing through your body. And that if you're doing other things that are sort of where calm or precision is going to pay off, you want to be able to sort of control it and flip the switch off. And that right. it was really about this chemical, as you say, it's about this sort of chemical reptilian kind of reaction, fight or flight. As I actually started doing the reading and going out in the field and doing the research, I came away with a more nuanced version of it. It's not to say that adrenaline doesn't matter. It definitely does. But I came to see it less as a light switch and more as like a mixing board with different volume knobs on it. So I think about turning up or down confidence, turning up or down anxiety, turning up or down energy levels. Those are really the three big things. I came away thinking it's much more about controlling your emotions and trying to regulate them and much less about sort of the chemical process inside your body. Talk to me about, you know, the experience of writing this and how you employed some of the methodology that you discovered and you kind of crystallized into your own, I guess, the uphill struggle having just finished my own book, uh, Plug Plug. Um, and I realized it was that, at, that at book times, is Hotel Scarface. Hotel Scarface, correct? yeah, but I digress. Um, I, I, there, were, there were moments of euphoria and inspiration and unbelievable turns of phrases uh, 
while while uh, you know Spotify was was going through its like thirty sixth hour of continuous music, and there were other days of just you know I'm stuck in this ditch and this moat, and I wanted to reach for something. I you know if it's not caffeine, is it a walk? Is it um, uh, do I go listen to a TED talk? Do I read something? Do I completely veg out and order a pizza? I didn't have something to reach for, kind of in that in that you know the, the valley of doubt. Oh, let me tell you three or four things that I started doing as a result of this, or at least I tried doing. Some of them I don't really do on an ongoing basis. So number one, um, there's a lot of research that shows that rituals or routines help people, even if it's something like writing, which doesn't feel like a high pressure, you know, high stakes kind of event if you're doing it every day. But there's anxiety involved in writing, uh, especially if it's a first book. Uh, so one of the things I started doing, you know, greatest hits, I go back, I'll go back, doesn't take me more than two or three minutes. I was a journalist for 20 years and I have a few stories that I really thought turned out well. And I'll just pull one of them out and read it before I start because it, it primes my mind to think, wow, you're pretty good at this. You know, remember that great thing you did a few years ago, let's sit down and do it again. So that's number one. Second thing is kind of a superstition kind of thing. There's research that shows that if you're a performer and you're using a tool or an implement and that implement has been used by somebody who's really good or famous or a celebrity, that it can kind of rub off on you. So I went out and reached out to Malcolm Gladwell and I had him, I shipped him a computer keyboard. I had him write on it for three months and he shipped it back to me. So I don't use it every day now, but when I have something that I feel is really important or I'm feeling a little bit anxious about, I have my Malcolm Gladwell keyboard that I can type on. I, you know, keep it around in my desk when I need it. Um, so that's the second thing I did. Uh, I changed the way I think about music when I write. Um, I used to, you know, play different kinds of classical. Or I'd play this or that. I always thought that there was this perfect soundtrack out there. And if I found it, it would help me get in the zone. But when you look at the research, uh, for a lot of people, especially introverts, quiet is going to be better. And so I stopped with the music. I, you know, I don't like to write. I used to think I'd like write better on music. I don't. I write better in dead silence. So I have soundproof headphones. I'll go to a library. I seek silence when I need to be super productive. And the last thing you mentioned, caffeine. Obviously, caffeine energizes you. It keeps you awake. Um, some people in college especially are known to use um, uh, the Adderall kind of drugs, Ritalin, Adderall, those kind of drugs. Um, I didn't mess with any of that stuff. I did try with a doctor's prescription and a doctor's supervision an anti-narcolepsy drug called modafinil um, that people rave about for its focus and what its What is that, enhancing. like Provigil or something? It's called modafinil. It's, it was invented in the 90s by a French pharmaceutical company. The biggest proponent of it is uh, Dave Asprey, the bulletproof diet guy. Um, uh, he's written about it a lot. Uh, so I went to a doctor. I explained why I wanted the drug, why uh, you know why I thought it would be helpful to me. I tried it a few times. Uh, it did seem to you know it it kept my mind very alert for long periods of time. But one of the things I learned, I'm 46 years old. It didn't help my shoulders or my hands. You know, after 12 or 13 hours typing on a computer, I still my body. Even if my mind was sharp, my body would start to get tired. Um, uh, so those are the kinds of things that have I you, messed have around you with. Have you explored um, Four Loco? Uh, no. Have you explored cocaine or lewds? No. Um, okay. No, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I'm, uh, I'm pretty naive. I uh, have not lived the high life at all. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzai. We're talking to Dan McGinn, senior editor at Harvard Business Review, on his new book, Psyched Up. 
Uh, it's a Penguin Portfolio book. Hits in June. I do want to uh, uh, get to some of these examples. Uh, you're in Boston. You're a Boston person. Uh, why, for example, would the detested New England Patriots hire the DJ from the loathsome Red Sox to help them win? So I spent a lot of time with uh, this guy. His name is T.J. Connolly, uh, and he in the music chapter, he's one of the central characters. Uh, so he started working at Fenway in 2008, and so he chooses all the music, um, and there's basically four scenarios. He chooses the music that the players do during batting practice, which is sort of the early period of the psych-up time. He doesn't choose all the walk-up songs for the players. The players are in charge of choosing their songs themselves, but a lot of them defer to him or they'll say, you know, I like this artist. Can you choose the song? So he definitely has some discretion there. He plays music between the innings to try to keep the crowd engaged. And then during play, when there's a big play, uh, he very, very quickly will try to pull up a relevant track. Um, and so he really is trying to orchestrate the mood and be the amplifier in the ballpark. If something happens on the field and he can get the crowd to be more excited about it, that can help the players be more excited about it. So there does seem to be something going on there. Doesn't it ultimately all boil down to Journey's 1981 hit, Don't Stop Believing? That song does come up repeatedly in this uh and, you know, the song that comes up the most when you have these conversations, and it actually has been used in academic studies, are the Rocky theme songs um, from the movie. And I I went out to um, to Chicago. And yeah, spent, what is that one before? The, uh, before the Bulls uh, games? Uh, so I went out, I, well, I went out and spent time with the guy from Survivor who co-wrote yeah, Survivor. Eye of the Tiger. That's right, um, that's right. He lives in a house with 182 guitars in it. Uh, he wears leather clothing. He has a special leather tailor who makes his clothing for him. And I believe they put those guys in a coffee ad. Do you remember? Like it was like, Stan, 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 Stan. Do you remember? This is that, that song has had an unbelievable, uh, I found new, I found, you know, personal essays of, of, of a woman, um, who would listen to that song before being artificially inseminated. Oh um, they use it in rehab hospitals. Uh, there are CEOs who listen to it before board meetings. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with the guy trying to get at what is it about that Eye of the Tiger song in particular that makes it so iconic for Psych Up. And one of the things he says, because there's different theories about this. One of the theories is that a song is motivational because of our recollections of it, that it's about our memories and that, so, okay, we all remember the training montages from the Rocky movies. And when we hear that song, we think of the montage and it sort of gets us pumped up. To me, it's the montage in Scarface. Push it to the limit. Yeah. No, growing up as a Miami kid, that's neither here nor there again, but continue. He makes the point that the uh, lead singer from uh, Survivors makes the point, Eye of the Tiger has been downloaded in the iTunes era, six million times. And he's like, a lot of those people probably never saw Rocky three. Um, so it, there's something about the song itself, apart from the movie, that the musicality of it seems to work in a way that gets people going. So what it is, is it about that song and why are some songs better than others? And there is really a science to it and the get, book gets into it to a certain extent. Uh, tell me about Jerry Seinfeld's jacket and, and Stephen Colbert's pen. Sure. So I talked, I talked with Seinfeld about what he does before a show. And he is a creature of habit. He has a set routine. He And it's not super elaborate. It's pretty simple, actually. So he, you know, has note cards with his jokes on them. He, you know, sp spends a certain amount of time studying and studying the, the note cards. He has the stage manager come and get him so many minutes before the show. 
he he walks around in certain patterns and then he says he takes his jacket and he puts his jacket on and he and basically he says that for him when that jacket goes on something happens it's sort of the key moment for him it's sort of like putting his game face on or like a football player who puts his helmet on that signals to his body okay it's it's time to go out there and do our thing again not super complicated but it's a ritual that and a habit and it just sort of tells his body what to do uh colbert on the other hand has a much more elaborate uh thing i did not talk to colbert this is drawn from an interview he gave to somebody else but he has a hotel bell that he rings he uh does a certain hand gesture with every member of the staff. He chews on a certain kind of big pen. He stares at a certain point in the wall. Um, he's got all these sort of, uh, and it, it shows that Seinfeld is more of a routine. Uh, Colbert's is, is where you're getting into ritual and even superstition. So there's a line there. Uh, Dan McGinn, I want to take you into a, a bit of a detour in the 10 minutes or so we have left. Um, obviously, Harvard Business View, HBR is very big into disruption. And I'm thinking about all these industries uh, right now that are not just in, in um, you know, cyclical decline, but clearly secular decline, print magazine writing, or if you're at a regional newspaper and you've had to live through 10 different rounds of layoffs and um, your benefits have been cut left and right and you're, you're being forced to take mandatory unpaid leave during the summer or somebody in retail right now, a bunch of your stores are closing. It could be a, a Sears or a JCPenney or something like that. And you're in that position and you're a manager and you have to kind of fish or cut bait in terms of pep. What is what is the one thing you can kind of reach for? Is it an empathy that, you know, we're, we're all in this together. We just have to make the best of it. Because, again, I'm coming from the school of thought that if you're in a disrupted and shrinking industry, the, the, the biggest motivator is effectively fear. That, that You better try especially hard to hang on to your job because uh, layoffs are a dime a dozen here and there are going to be more of them. And if you don't you know, or else you're going to feel it. Yeah. So I, I would think, so, you know, I'm not necessarily an expert on that question. So I'll, I'll give a little disclaimer, but I, my own take on that. And I, you know, as a journalist, I've, uh, I have in the past worked in a, uh, an industry and in a business that, uh, felt like it was being disrupted. Yeah, that's why I'm um, asking you almost autobiographically in this case, suppose you were, you were at, you know, your, your old alma mater Newsweek, when I first met you, for example, has been significantly diminished um, and uh, it was shut down briefly. It was resurrected. They got rid of the editor. There's zero security to that. And you have to be almost tunnel vision focused on my body of work. What gives me fulfillment? It's like you said, you go back and read your old bylines. Um, it's one of the reasons I left the industry from a full-time perspective is that there wasn't there wasn't anything being dangled out there anymore in terms of a, a, an incentive and motivation and pulling people aside. Everybody was kind of looking at each other and shrugging, and it was like, well, it is what it is. Yeah, I think in terms of how I would try to manage through that or what I think would work, I don't think a manager communicating in a way that tries to create or enhance the fear is going to be at all useful. If you work in an environment like that, you know, the fear is there and you know, there's dialing it up is not going to make anybody more productive or more energizing. I think um, trying to be empathetic and acknowledging that this is scary and this is hard um, will at least help create more of a bond between the leader and the followers. And I think the other thing is to um, not put yourself into a situation where you're giving too much false hope in terms of employment security. Um, but, you know, it, it, you know, when jobs are safe, try to communicate that. And if you know, jobs are not safe, you know, 
obviously when you're in a situation where you're reducing, you're doing layoffs, you know, you can't be totally transparent about planning and all that kind of thing. But um, trying to not put yourself into a situation where uh, your people feel like you are not being straight with them. Um, mm. I think those are the two kinds of things. And I, having, as you asked me about Newsweek, um, I think uh, when you leave a situation like that, I left Newsweek in 2010. I left uh, before uh, it became, you know, really troubled. Um, it's not until you're out of it that you really realize how much anxiety there might've been around the place. Um, it's one of those situations where you don't really have a full understanding of what, of it until you're, you're working somewhere else where you don't feel that on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so, uh, you know, having gone through that, I'm now, uh, happy to be in a, a place that's focused on growth and has a, a great business model. Mm. And I also think about Scott Stossel, the Atlantic editor who's written about his, um, ordeal with anxiety and depression and writ large, I mean, how impressive his bylines are, um, how much I can kind of get into his head and enjoy reading his books. But seeing the routine that he has to go through, for example, uh, before public speaking, which is something that occurs naturally to me and other journalists, but clearly not to him, he takes a half a milligram of the sedative Xanax um, four hours before he takes the stage. An hour before the event, he takes a second half a milligram of Xanax and 20 milligrams of Inderol, which is generically propanolol, a beta blocker that's become the go-to medicine for people who suffer from performance anxiety. And he chases the pills with a shot of vodka and does a second shot 15 minutes before he's due to speak. What I want to know in reading this and reading his book is what is it about super high-performing people, um, I don't know, creatively in the world of, of corporate America, in journalism, the go-getters seem to have a, a disproportionate bout of anxiety or that it's really chronic with them. So Scott's book was just an incredible, uh, not just incredible from his personal journey, um, but also in terms of the history of anxiety disorders, the history of, of the drugs and their, and, you know, talk therapy that have been used to treat it. Um, for anybody that's at all interested in anxiety disorders, Scott Stossel's book, My Age of Anxiety, is really required reading. So it's a phenomenal uh, book. Um, in terms of his, you know, medical regimen, um, you know, aside from the alcohol, uh, you know, I don't think doctors are going to... Uh, advise people to to drink before they go into public speaking. So that's probably not the best idea in the whole world. Um, the, the beta blockers, I, one of the things that surprised me during this reporting, I started reporting on beta blockers. Beta blockers are a drug that reduce or eliminate the effect of adrenaline in your body. So the, the sensations that sometimes people feel when they public speak or go on television, the dry mouth, the shallow breathing, the sweating, um, it reduces it by quite a bit. Uh, and so I, I got a prescription for these drugs uh, while doing the book. I tried it a couple times. It, you know, it definitely seemed to have some impact. But one of the things that was striking was how many people, once I started asking around, oh, yeah, I've tried those. I use um, them, yeah. Ran into a woman the other day who read the book, and she um, described having to give a eulogy at her best friend's, one of her best friend's parents' um, uh, funerals. And she was, you know, extremely nervous and she called her doctor and he wrote a script and it worked like magic for her. Um, so I don't, I'm, I have no vested interest in these drugs and I, I don't, they didn't, they didn't have this profound effect on me that I've heard from others, but I was surprised how many kind of closet users there are of them, um, with a prescription. I mean, and they're a totally legal drug. Mm. Close us out. Tell me, uh, what the biggest takeaways for you were personally from this and, and kind of what sides pro projects it might spawn and what we can expect from you over the next few months as the book hits. Sure. Well, I think um, I've developed an interest in, you know, I like looking at photos of people right before the moment when they're 
performing. So, you know, during the Olympics, I'm, I'm as interested in watching the athletes, you know, five minutes before their event as I am watching them compete. During presidential debates, I like the backstage photography. I like watching the players walk into the into the stadium for the Super Bowl. I've, I've always been fascinated in what they're doing during that key time. The biggest takeaway from the book is that there's actual science behind what works and what doesn't. And even if you're not Tom Brady, even if you're not Michael Phelps, if your job involves moments where you feel some pressure to perform, you should have a routine like they do. It should be science-based. Doesn't have to be crazy elaborate. You know, you don't need to be, you know, jumping around or or doing, you know, crazy rituals. But there are, you know, there are drugs, there's music, there are pep talks, there are psychological techniques to optimize your confidence and lower your anxiety and put yourself in the mindset to do your best. Daniel McGinn. Editor at Harvard Business Review and author of forthcoming book, Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. I recommend this book. It's a fast, quick read and will certainly help you. You'll certainly look at the people you interact with professionally, everybody from a surgeon to uh, athletes who you watch on TV differently. I think it's a great book. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Visit us and love us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. On Twitter, we're at FullDRadio and Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Face-to-face, out in the heat, hanging tough, staying hungry. They stack the odds. Still, we take to the street. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.